Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, joined by Sean Degenhart. Hello. And John Redling Schaefer. Hello. <laughs> On our best behavior this week. Thank you for joining us. I was on probation after last week. <laughs> uh, hey, did you hear that? <laughs> Before we get started, whatever platform you're following us on, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please leave us a review so more people find the show. You can share it on social media and tag us. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. We like to kick things off with our Disney views, and here's John. All right. Well, another anniversary to celebrate. That's what we're good at at the Disney theme parks. This time it's the 25th anniversary celebration beginning at Disney's Animal Kingdom. That's right. In 1998, the new type of theme park actually opened in Florida, and the Disney Parks blog announced that they unearthed the time capsule buried during that event, and it, you know, various news clippings and the like, but also some really sweet, inspiring, and sentimental letters written from the opening cast member team. And so I wanted to read a little bit from that letter that they posted on the Disney blog site. To the Disney Animal Kingdom cast of 2023, 25 years have passed since this time capsule was buried and this letter was written. In that time, many changes have occurred. You've entered a new millennium. A year and a half ago, Walt Disney World celebrated its 50th anniversary as Disneyland now approaches its 68th. Little did they know that the 50th celebration would last mm -hmm. 18 months. <laughs> In a few short months, on October 16th, 2023, our company will reach a very notable milestone, the marking of our first century of bringing the high-quality entertainment to the world. Time certainly is a powerful force, changing the course of many companies and etching out new formations in long-established corporate landscapes. The success and longevity of our company has firmly grown from solid roots, the traditions and legacies established by Walt Disney and his brother Roy. Each new ring of the trunk signals the growth of another generation of cast members to uphold these traditions as we branch into new adventures across the planet. The branches of our company's legacy spread high and wide, but the branch that we share with you is particularly special. As it was passed to us, we are passing on to you Walt's love and appreciation for animals an inheritance of which this park was based on and which we can all be proud. Today, as we bury the time capsule, we celebrate the hope that our efforts will have made a difference in our tomorrow, your today. We hope that our conservation messages have reached able champions for the environment, that the passions of our cast members have inspired new generations of guests to take environmental action, and that a beneficial difference on our planet has been made. With the opening of every new theme park, there are challenges at every turn. Disney's Animal Kingdom is no exception. With every challenge, a solution. With every effort, a reward. With every sacrifice, a grander purpose. Every triumph gives us more to be proud of and more reason to be glad to have been part of it all. We are honored to have been part of the opening of a new species of theme park. Through our commitment and dedicated efforts, we have seen our guests empowered with a, a renewed sense of nature and embrace a new appreciation for man's stake in the world. As these same guests return with their kids and grandkids, we trust that you are instilling the same sense of stewardship. We thank you for taking pride in and for caring for the park that we helped establish a quarter century ago and hope that you will continue to nurture Disney's Animal Kingdom so that it will remain a source of inspiration and enjoyment for all who visit. We wish you luck and your commitment to the next 25. That's Thanks. very cool, yeah. It's always special when they have these types of ceremonies, right? So very cool. 
I don't know if they buried anything for the next 25 years. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say. Okay, well, awesome. Have either of you ever been part of a uh, a time capsule burial or unveiling? Yeah, I mean, every time you know a new church is built or a, a new uh, building, yeah, I, I, I've seen them buried. I, I've never seen one opened. I think what was cool about this was that they wrote something for the future to read mm-hmm. because now with the internet, we can look at these old images. Yeah, throwing in a CD or throwing in yeah, you know, right. a, a rotary phone, okay, that's neat, but we know what existed then. Right, right. Handwritten messages, I think, are really cool if, if you're even connected to a time capsule going forward. I think that's what you do, assuming people can read cursive, so you might want to print it or type it uh, if you do it. Cursive is our code to take back the world. That and stick shift. Oh. The kids will not be able to survive if we write in cursive and drive stick shifts. Recently at the Peoria Riverfront Museum, we sat down with author and historian J.B. Kaufman. Sean and I were able to conduct this interview. We're thrilled to have noted author and historian J.B. Kaufman again with us this year for the Disney Film Fest in Peoria, Illinois. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it is my pleasure to join you here. You spoke before each of the feature-length films this year and the Mickey Shorts. If it's okay, I thought we could talk about those a little bit. We'll start with Bambi. Sure. Disney's fifth film, 1942. What struck me about seeing it on that big screen uh, this time was the Tyrus Wong impressionistic backgrounds. Can you talk about the look of this movie and how those backgrounds help the audience focus on the detailed characters? Well, that was, that was kind of the big innovation. They had had a number of artists uh, offer their take on how the styling might, might be pictured. And um, there were some great painters that worked there and they came up with some beautiful paintings but they were very, very detailed. So number one, uh, it's, it's hard to use a background like that and have the character read well in front of it. And number two, if all of the backgrounds in the film had been painted that way, it would have taken another five years to finish the film. So strictly from a, from a practical standpoint, uh, it, was, it was just a blessing to have Tyrus Wong come up with the approach that he had, which was, which was almost impressionist. It was... It was just that that beautiful suggestion of atmosphere and of all that foliage um, that was that was his big contribution and it really made the look of the film it has that wonderful atmospheric uh, feel of, of, of the forest and uh, I always I, I like to think of it as of the film as an impressionist painting of nature that moves and that's a pretty that's a pretty remarkable achievement, I think. And as you're watching, if you didn't know that, you probably wouldn't think twice about it because it just works so well together. I mean, you're not thinking, well, I don't see leaves on that tree, but it fills, your mind fills in all the gaps. That's right. That's right. There are, there are some artistic functions that are most successful when they are absorbed subliminally or unconsciously. And I think that a good background painting... Uh, fits in that category and um, being that that Sean is part of this conversation I think that we probably ought to mention the music too because um, I I think that well it's 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 commonly agreed that the Bambi score is one of the the best Disney musical scores ever and um, and again it's very unobtrusive 
but after you've gotten to know the melodies in it a little bit, you watch the film again with that in mind, and you just can't help admiring how beautiful it is as music and how it uh, uh, constantly underpins the action and the mood of each scene in the film. After I got home from seeing the screening yesterday, I was listening to the soundtrack. There's an hour and seven minutes worth of music in that film, and the film itself is an hour and nine minutes long. That's right. (laughs) And I had not noticed before, but they save the brass for when you see the Prince of the Forest and all those big, epic, strong scenes. Everything else is light strings and woodwinds and Mm -hmm. accompanying that fun action, but then the brass are saved for those big, strong moments. And I had not noticed that until watching the screening yesterday. That's that's right. And all of that kind of dissonant, harsh music for for the scenes of the forest fire at the Mm -hmm. end and so on. It's just, it's a, it is a masterpiece. And the Little April Showers is just a yeah, fantastic yeah. song. You don't think about the songs from the film, but there's some because, great ones. Because they're non-diegetic songs. Right. It's, it's, uh, that's, that's one of the, the great things about it. It wasn't quite the first time that they had ever done that, but it, is, it, it has a whole different effect than watching a character on the screen singing a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's more like a like an off-screen commentary, like it's coming from a Greek chorus or something. And uh, yeah, I think my I think my two favorite sequences in the film are Little April Shower, and later on um, I Bring You a Song. Uh, and that I think is where you really see that that whole feeling of the the impressionist nature painting at work. Uh, the music really supports that too. And the title track, The Love is a Song, is mm-hmm. sung by Donald Novus, right. who is a cast member at Disneyland for, was it the Golden Horseshoe Review that he was a part of? See, that I didn't know. I knew that he was a popular tenor at the time. That's as close as they got to a celebrity voice talent mm-hmm. in, in Bambi. Uh, he, was, he, he had recorded a number of, of uh, records. He was, he was a well-known tenor. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that he wound up because that's that's a Disneyland is a little after right. my time. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Golden Horseshoe Review that he was a part of that original cast. Oh, very good, very good. I want to talk about the evolution of the animation. Uh, the characters have changed so much from Snow White in just a few years. Mm-hmm. Walt was so uh, Walt always pushed for progression as far as uh, talent goes mm-hmm. for his uh for his animators can you talk about that just how much more of a how much of a higher level the animals are in this film well that's you know that's um i must say that that is the the approach that the disney artists themselves always used to me it's actually a matter of of saying uh not necessarily better but different I've, this is kind of a kind of a soapbox for me. I always feel that that one of the interesting things about those those big five uh, Disney features is that there wasn't any one single recognizable Disney style at that time. Um, each one of those films has a distinct style of its own, and in the case of Fantasia, more than one. And I think that versatility is a big part of of what Walt took pride in at the time. Um, the fact that they, they could actually come up with a distinct graphic style that fit the film, fit the story, 
and was appropriate to to what they were doing in in the film and and so yeah the uh the the deer in in snow white look like stuffed toys compared to the the meticulously observed anatomically correct deer in bambi but that's because each one of those fits the the mood and the atmosphere and, and the and the story of, of the film. So if you took the the deer in Snow White and and put them in Bambi, of course that wouldn't work. But I think it's the same way. If you took those those very very convincing deer from Bambi and planted them in Snow White, that wouldn't work either. So I think of it as as a matter of variety. Uh, but but it, of course it is the case that. Um, that it took a long, long time to arrive at the facility to portray those animals in that way. And that's one of the reasons it took so long to produce the film. And as we were watching Bambi and, you know, last year Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, it made me think of, there's a scene in, I believe it's the second Wreck-It Ralph, where all the princesses make an appearance, but yet you've got princesses that were designed totally different that they tried to mod differently and then to try to put them together required a little bit of adjustment mm -hmm. so that they didn't look so strikingly different from one another mm -hmm. that they still looked, you know, the Disney brand, but yet maintained their own individual identities. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn here, but my sense is that the whole object of something like that was different from Walt's object when these films were originally made. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was... I don't think he was thinking in terms of a Disney princess brand. Right. And... I, th I think um, I think a lot of the little girls in, who were in the audience today might be upset to hear me say that, but uh, but I think you know I don't think that Walt was thinking of, of princess movies. I think he was thinking of movies, and he he was just determined to make each one as outstanding as it could be. Let's switch to Sleeping Beauty, a masterpiece. Um, this film took you you alluded to it in your talk. I think you said nine years. Well. Uh, sort of. It, it was nine years between the beginning and the finish. There sure. was a, a period in the middle where they actively shelved it because of all the other things going on. But, right. but yeah, from, from beginning to end was a span of nine years. So important to the Disney studio that Walt built Disneyland and named his castle the main object in the middle of the park after a film that wouldn't open for four more years. Right, right. Can you talk about the importance of this movie, maybe some of the hurdles that they had to leap, that some of the animators or the producers had to leap because it went over budget and it was uh, not a financial success at the time, but it was huge. It was huge, and it, it kind of represents the end of an era in one way. Um, I, th I think that Walt made a point of, of shifting gears after this one because it was less than successful on its original release, although it, wasn't, it definitely wasn't the first Disney feature that you could say that about. Um, but yeah, it, it was a tremendous challenge. Again, I think the idea of, of framing it as a moving illustration uh, I think that concept informed everything that, that went into the film after that. And you see that as, as you watch the film. It is like, like seeing some of those classic storybook illustrations come to life. And um, so, so there, and I think that, that uh, the challenges of making a widescreen animated film, uh, and I 
I uh, referred to that in there, but I, th I think that that um, was a challenge and that it feeds into that other thing as well because um, you, you really do, in that wide expanse of screen, you've got uh, what looks like a storybook illustration and then one part of it is moving or, or two parts. You know, and um, I did notice. Yeah, there were a lot of scenes where characters were frozen. Yeah, and yeah. And you were focused on one certain spot, and you right. really weren't. I mean, you're taking it all in, but you're mm -hmm. you're. They wanted your focus on one spot on the screen. Right, right. There was there was a real art to that, and they, uh, you know, we we talked a little bit about the differences in editing, that that came about because of the widescreen format, uh, fewer cuts. Um, but even in that context, uh, the director can still guide the viewer's eye because if, if the whole image is static but there's one section of it where there, where there is movement, uh, immediately the eye goes to that. And, uh, and there's, there's a whole aesthetic based on that that uh, comes to a kind of brilliant fruition, I think, in Sleeping Beauty. The screening that we saw was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it, seeing it on the big screen was, I mean, that's the way to do it. And I noticed a lot of the things like you had mentioned. There was a scene where the Herald trumpets were playing. Mm -hmm. They were not animated, except there was a little motion in their cheeks uh -huh. to show them uh -huh. breathing for uh -huh. the fanfare. Uh -huh. And just some beautiful details that you don't get you know, on your TV at home. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, that's, that's very important. Um, and, and it's... There's, there's a really impressive uh, and I think pretty savvy way of, of marshalling resources in, in the way they make a film like this. Um, by the end of the 50s, limited animation was not only accepted, but it was the mainstream. And, and I think, and, and in fact, Walt had experimented with some of that before Sleeping Beauty was finished. Sleeping Beauty was the kind of, of sumptuous, uh, gorgeous creation that I think didn't go with that idea. But some of those principles were there. So as you say, like with the Heralds, uh, you, you have a, a held drawing, but there's just that much movement that keeps the character alive on the screen. Mm -hmm. And um, you know they, they accomplish a lot with a minimum of resources in some of those cases. You said limited animation had become accepted by that point. Was this because of television and lower budgets? Well, television had a lot to do with it. Um, and it was also, it was, it was the kind of the, uh, the, sh the artistic chic of the time, you know, uh, the, the mid-century modern feeling. Um, there was there was this the, the the UPA aesthetic, you know, the the idea that that kind of movement, that very limited movement, uh, is much easier and faster and less expensive to produce, but it also makes an, an artistic statement of its own, and uh, that's that was their story, and they were sticking to it, and uh, and thanks to Ward Kimball, um, the the Disney Studio had really uh, dipped a toe in that water too. But it was for specialized projects, like Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. Sure. It wasn't for Sleeping Beauty. But again, you know, they were able to use just a little bit of that principle in a very creative and effective way. 
Yeah, amazing. The colors pop. The This is the first time I've ever seen this on a large screen. So um, something you, you mentioned in your talk that I, I noticed, but I never really thought about, was the lighting, the dramatic lighting. Was that Ivan Earl who, who stylized the movie, uh, directed, or, or it was his baby, right, essentially? The, the design was, yes, yeah. yes. And, and so did he have this... Did he bring that talent or that, those tools to the table often with the light, with the dramatic lighting? Well, based on what I've seen, I would say yes, because if you look at those concept sketches of his, uh, he uses that a lot. You know, when when he's when he's expressing something dramatic, uh, the lighting is a big part of the drama. So, based on the evidence, I would say yes, that a lot of that came from him. We saw a series of Mickey Mouse shorts. Finally, yeah. <laughs> on the big yeah. screen. Mm-hmm. I'm a big Mickey fan uh, of all years. You and me both, brother. <laughs> um, were they hand-selected by you? Yes, they were. And why? Well, um, in some cases, it was a matter of elimination. Uh, an obvious place to go would have, would have been Steamboat Willie, but partly because it was so obvious, and we figured that everybody in the world has seen Steamboat Willie by now, uh, we thought it might be better to start with Plane Crazy instead. Um, Mickey's Choo Choo. Um, I kind of suggested that because it's it's been a big favorite at my house. And we wanted something from that 1929 period before iWorks left the studio. And that is one that um, gets overlooked a lot, I think. And that was kind of the idea. We wanted to straddle the line between the the well-known and the kind of more obscure um you olden days i think this is this is strictly a personal opinion but i think if you had to pick a peak year for mickey mouse it would be 1933 every single mouse picture in that year is a winner and uh you olden days is just so much fun and i and i loved being able to make the point that it was a remake of of the oswald cartoon Oh, what a night. And it's, it's kind of remarkable how, how close it is. And they did that a lot. You know, that, that was something, you see that uh, in, a, in other filmmakers, too. You see that with um, Laurel and Hardy. Uh, you know, they, they straddled the line between uh, silent and sound. They made great films in, in both eras. Um, and some of their brilliant silent films were then later remade with sound and and it's it's fascinating to put the two versions of something like that side by side well disney did the same thing and then in some ways did it again when he went from black and white to color um and i think it's just fascinating to see a through line like that and 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 unfailingly what he does when he when he does a remake is to try to plus it and, and add new details and new gags and so on. So in the case of the olden days, uh, I, I mentioned yesterday that, that the obvious thing, the opening where the, where the character is, is riding a mule and, and singing, well, the olden days being a sound film, you can hear the song that he's singing. And, um, and the, the uh, crowd scenes are more elaborate, lots of really good gags with the king. Uh, I love some of the dialogue that they were coming up with at the time. You know, in a cartoon like that, you don't normally think of the dialogue. But I, th- I think it was Ted Sears who, who had a lot to do with coming up with those great little lines. She acts like a fanatic. Lock her in the attic. Um, 
so it just seemed to illustrate uh, a lot of really good things all in one cartoon. Well, that movie is uh, 90 years old, and we're sitting in a theater with a lot of young people, and there was laughter, and it was alive. I mean, these are timeless uh, jokes, <laughs> you know, that work still today. It, it's, it, it's a testament to uh, the universality of, of Disney's films. When, uh, when Russell Merritt and I, uh, I hope you'll pardon my bringing this into it, but uh, Russell was one of my best friends for more than 30 years, and, and he just died last month. And... Uh, I'm, I'm still working on getting over that. But when he and I wrote our book about uh, the Silly Symphonies, um, we, it, it, was, it was published by our friends in Italy who run the silent film festival. The Silly, the silly Symphonies are not uh, silent films, but they featured some of them that year on the rationale that they're all about visuals and music, which is what the best silent cinema is about. So that was our excuse anyway. But we had a, a screening one day of, of some of the uh, early symphonies for an audience of Italian school kids. They, 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 their teachers brought them to one of the theaters there at the festival to, to see these, these films, and we presented them. And it was just such a breath of fresh air to see this theater full of young kids watching the skeleton dance for the first time. We've all seen it a hundred times, and we admire it and everything. But to see them watching it for the first time and just utterly enjoying it, that was just, it's the same kind of revelation that you're talking about here. I wonder if people truly understand how big Mickey Mouse was, especially in the early 1930s, before television. There, was, there were Mickey Mouse clubs uh, 20 years before the TV show. Films that had Mickey shorts that played in front of them did better financially because of that there was a song written what no mickey mouse what kind of a party is this right right and do you do you think people understand i mean today he's a global icon mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it was almost like a, a small wave that grew and grew across it, the country it was it was it it, it came it was organic it, it came from within and uh yeah, I, I, that's one of the things that I love about the early Mickey Mouse is that he's not conceived as a corporate icon. He's a cartoon mouse. And, um, and there's just a freshness and a, and a joy about him in, in those films. Um, it's, it is the case that Felix the Cat had enjoyed a lot of success during the 1920s. And, and he's a great little guy, too. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to build up one thing by tearing down something else. I, I love the Felix films, and, and he was very, very popular, and he had popular songs written about him, and he had, you know, mer merchandise and so on. But then Mickey comes along, and I think, that, I think that Felix could have been even a bigger phenomenon than he was if Pat Sullivan had really worked at it. Um, Walt was right there. He was ready to work at it, and... Uh, Roy said that, you know, he, he talked about how we had all these little novelties and things, and Walt was a great one for thinking up ideas like that. So, so yeah, they, uh, they started uh, turning out Mickey merchandise as early as 1929. And um, any time that Walt saw an opportunity to advance that, he was, he was ready to do it. And so, yeah, you're right. There were the Mickey Mouse clubs. There were just 
I, I, any number of things. You, you could you could point to all kinds of merchandise that was that was created then, and and he was he really was a phenomenon. There's there was I, I don't I forget who it was that said this, but but it was around that time that somebody said words to the effect. I'm paraphrasing here, but words to the effect of Americanism is spending millions of dollars to produce uh, a feature-length biblical epic and then sitting through it to see Mickey Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) That sums it up perfectly. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for coming here and talking to the people of Peoria and enlightening us on these classics. Well, it is my great pleasure, and I must say that uh, this is only the second time I've visited Peoria, but I've really fallen for the place. It's, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful place with wonderful people, so it's, it's, it's a real treat to be here. Thank you. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Thank you.